Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Greetings and welcome to Under Consultation, a podcast guide through the UK video game shows that aired in the aftermath of Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and I'm here to shake up the scene while shaking my chest. Luke, you trollop, we're out of booze. And I am Ash Versus. This episode of Bits aired on the 2nd of October 2000. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 tops the video game charts. Mariah Carey and Westlife top the pops with Against All Odds. And our number one movie at the box office is Paul Verhoeven's Hollow Man. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Ed. Your team's in early today. Something special going on? Sorry, Ed. You know the rules. If we're going to move forward, this is the next logical step. Ready for you. Are you sure? Positive. There goes nothing. Sebastian? Are you in here? So, what's it like being a ghost? Ghosts are dead. I'm very much alive. question is, what would you do if you knew you couldn't be seen? You trust your eyes. You rely on your senses. Sebastian, this is not funny. You're alone. Why did you have to go out in public? You have no idea what it's like. The power of it, the freedom. It's amazing what you can do when you don't have to look at yourself in the mirror anymore. How is it we are now two plus years in the future? We've just finished talking very excitedly about Paul Verhoeven with Starship Troopers. 
And we're back here again. And when we talked about Starship Troopers, I don't think we knew we would then be sat here a few weeks later talking about Hollow Man, a movie that you really like for at least some partial boob reasons and that I really like because I just think it's a really quite clever film with a really good cast and some really really unique special effects for the time love the special effects that the, you know that they've got there the, the way he's wearing the mask and the mouth is moving and stuff and you can see the eyes are moving i think it looks fantastic it's aged really well like obviously the the effects would be better had they been done with, with 2023 technology but for 2000s technology i think it really does hold up it holds up better than some movies that are going to come out in the next couple of years uh, on a much smaller budget as well. I think Bohemian did a really, really good job with this. And I think Kevin Bacon is, is a very, very fun and interesting villain lead. And it's interesting that you say a villain lead because this is, conventionally speaking, one of Paul Verhoeven's most friendly films. And I don't mean that it's happy kittens frolicking in a field. I just mean that... It's not quite as subversive. It's not quite as mm, controversial in the way that, say, Starship Troopers could be considered controversial or Robocop could be considered controversial. It is designed to be part of the Hollywood machine to the point where that's why Paul Verhoeven doesn't particularly like it. He's just like, well, I, I don't think I needed to make this film. Anyone could have made this film. 20-odd directors could have made this film and it would have probably been exactly the same as what I produced. But what's interesting in this film, and I found myself mentally comparing it to the book The Dice Man. Have you ever read that or are you aware of not. it? Are you aware of The Dice Man? I believe so. Yeah, it's the idea of it was kind of, it was written by an author, but it was also written like it was autobiographical. Yes. Yeah, and the yeah. idea is he's deciding everything he does by the role of the dice. And some of those things will lead to taking large amounts of drugs. Some of them will lead to going on a holiday. Some of them will lead to various forms of assault. Some will lead to murder. And there is a line in that book for everyone who reads it where the narrator slash author stops being the protagonist and starts becoming the antagonist. And I would argue the same thing happens in this film with Sebastian brackets Kevin Bacon of when does he cross the line and go from being a protagonist slash naughty to being an antagonist a villain past what people can be acceptable bad boy behavior for me the line is quite clear for others it is not but it does make it very very interesting to watch and also to watch other people's reactions to it for that precise reason. Yeah, it is a movie. I, I agree with what uh, Verhoeven said. This is not typically Verhoeven. There is no, like, you know, you look at Starship Troopers and you're like, oh, that's a Paul Verhoeven movie. If you look at Robocop, you're like, oh, I can see that's a Verhoeven movie. And like, you look at Showgirls, that's a Paul Verhoeven movie. Total Recall. Yeah, Total Recall. Another, exactly. I, I think he's right, though. The Hollow Man could have been anyone like you know I, I i think that this could have been done by any tom dick or harry it is a film that has got some fairly i mean you know you mentioned it's not a, it's not a controversial movie in any way but it is you know it's a little bit there's effectively rape in it oh there's no it's very very definitely rape yeah, with rape in it um, there's certain it, it's sexual assault is in the movie because kevin baker sebastian is is you know he basically gets the the gift of invisibility um which they're trying to, you know, the whole point of this movie is there's a group of scientists who are trying to perfect the art of it. And 
the idea of it and sort of the allure of it is what essentially takes over his mind and realizes that he can get away. If I can get away with that, then I can get away with this. And if I can get away with that, then I can get away with the other. And that's what spins it down to the path until you end to essentially the, the Scream-esque slasher movie that it becomes in its third and final act. And that is, I guess, where my brain started to draw the comparisons with the Dice Man as well, because in this case, it's because he's invisible, he feels he is free of consequence for his actions. In The Dice Man, it's the fact that he is putting every single decision down to the role of a die that he feels that his conscience is clear, despite the fact that, of course, he is deciding what each numerical value or an odd or an even on the die represents. It's a false equivalency. Um, i got the blu-ray set there was a really really nice blu-ray set of hollow man put out a couple of years ago and i got that and it's a really nice restoration a really nice package it is an interesting watch because of some of the content content warning it's not always an easy watch um but it is i think worth seeing also because the effects as they were done in 2000 is way beyond what you would expect people to be able to do in 2000 particularly with green and blue screen and on the budget it wasn't a small budget but it wasn't huge like other films we've discussed that came earlier in our time certainly cost a lot more i think it's you're out on the effects as well like if you watch the original invisible man the the universal one it's one of those oh man i can't believe they managed to get these effects look that that look this good in in 1934 i believe it's 34 um or 1935 you know the mid-30s and I think it's the same with Hollow Man. It's like, man, this actually looks dead good for a film that came out in 2000. And as I said, like, I think it's got effects that have aged better than films that came out in 2001 and 2002. And while it's not, you know, Verhoeven's best movie, it's not a movie that he particularly likes. It's a very successful movie for him. Like, this is like his second biggest movie he ever made. Yeah, because it had like a 95, 90, 95 million dollar budget and it grossed just under 200 million worldwide. Doubled its budget and then some. That's that's pretty good. That's, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, certainly better than, I, th- I think it did better than Starship Troopers did proportionally. Yeah, and uh, it's his last uh, movie from a major production company as well. The number one song is... Not the first time we've had Mariah Carey. No, this is only her like second uh, number one of the the top of the charts, and even then, it's obviously it's not as a solo act because she's with Westlife. Because we had um, I cannot remember Fantasy was the song that we had at the top of the charts with her previously back in our Games Master timeline, and we mentioned there that she's not going to have another number one until All I Want for Christmas becomes a Christmas number one years and years and decades down the line. But this is her other. UK number one, only this time she's partnered with the uh, very successful UK, many time UK number one artist, Westlife. I mean, when I said mentioned on this podcast, I was including the numerous times she has been mentioned in passing in our Christmas episodes, because as we discussed a little while ago, we have done more Christmas episodes than there have been Christmases since we started the podcast. But this cover with Westlife is the definition of phoning it in, because this is the second time she's covered this song. In fact, earlier this year of the year 2000 she recorded a cover of this song for her seventh studio album rainbow and that was released in may and then she did a re-release of the song later that year in collaboration with westlife which was released as the first single from their second album coast to coast but she didn't record this song with westlife They recorded backing vocals for her original vocal track. The vocal track on the Westlife Carey version 
it doesn't just sound similar to the one she laid down for her solo, it's the exact same studio take. Mm. So she recorded a music video with them, but couldn't be asked to actually sing the song again. The number one game we got as well, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2, uh, I played it a lot at the time. Um, not as much as I played uh, Tony Hawk's 3. That I played way more. I got, I've sunk a lot of hours into Tony Hawk's 3. We've mentioned on the podcast previously, you know, maxing out every character you possibly can, including the Neversoft Die. Tony Hawk's 2, though, I mean, it's considered to be the best of the series. It's not my favourite. And in fact, actually, when they did the re-release recently, when they did the remasters of Tony Hawk 1 and 2, I played through Tony Hawk 1. And when it came to playing through the Tony Hawk 2 levels, I actually had very little memory of them. Number one, I could sort of breeze through and I was like, I know exactly where everything is. I know where all the tapes are and I know where all the letters are. But when it came to Tony Hawk 2, I was like, I don't remember a lot of this. Remember, you know, the school level and you know the the opening level but didn't remember much else of that one so clearly like as much as everyone loves Tony Hawk 2 and it has got a great soundtrack it's not the one I've got the the most memories of of playing I remember playing Tony Hawk's one and I think Tony Hawk's 3 was the one that we discussed before as well with uh, the Ace of Spades is the opening title track that's the one I remember playing the most because I got that around the same time as I got my PS2. Yeah. Oh, that was a very good PS2 game. Yeah. Oh, it was absolute banger. I think I got that and whatever the latest SmackDown game was of the time. Oh, those were some long and crazy fun nights. Oh, yeah. And I, 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 from then on, I got really into like I bought every Tony Hawk's when they came out. So, you know, although I didn't like the Underground remakes, although, you know, I got four Underground, Underground 2. I got really heavily into, because I was into the skateboarding scene, so I was very much into getting the Tony Hawk's games. But for whatever reason, yeah, Tony Hawk's 2 is just not the one I played the most of. I grabbed the remasters 1 and 2 when they were on the PlayStation Plus games of the month. They sat on my PlayStation under my desk. I should give them a boot up. I should give it a go. I should see what I was missing, because you may not have much memory of 2. I've got zero memory of two. I went one, then three, and that was about it. Uh, I had a look at some other bits of TV and music news. On the 1st of October, the BBC airs live coverage of the closing ceremony of the 2000 Olympic Games. More on that later. As well as the return of Nick Cotton, an EastEnders spin-off series airs. Ah, nasty, nasty Nick Cotton. Poor old Dot. The following day, ITV's Soap Emmerdale begins airing five days a week, while the first edition of BBC's revamped breakfast news programme, Breakfast, is broadcast, which is still uh, on to this day. Now, those are some just bits of potted on, you know, I grabbed here and there. But I thought I'd just have a little scroll up, see what else was going on in the TV world. And I grabbed this from the 18th of September. The Independent Television Commission rejects viewer complaints about Channel 5's Naked Jungle, in which contestants and presenter Keith Chegwin are seen naked because it was aired after the watershed and did not breach decency regulations. Just go mad. Hello and a warm welcome to the Naked Jungle, a show to celebrate the world of naturism. Now we've got people from all walks of life and all age groups too, competing, wait for it, for a cash prize of 5,000 quid. But why Keith Chegwin? Well, you see, it was a choice between Brad Pitt or me. And because I'm the nation's sex symbol, they chose me. (laughs) Okay, we've got five couples taking part. Yes, first round, we will play the men against each other. And whoever wins that, we will find a man's champion. Then the ladies will play against each other, and we're looking for the women's champion. Then they'll both go forward, the two winners, that is, to play in the temple of of the body for that cash prize of 5,000 quid. Yep, naked Keith Chegwin. There is one... It's one of those moments 
which features in various TV countdowns. You know the TV countdowns they put on when they know they've got a good three, four hours of time to fill because there's something big on the other channels or no one's going to be watching. We are we are very, very close to a coronation. And I bet you that when that coronation is being covered, there will be at least one top 100 mm, going out on either Channel 4 or Channel 5 over that bank holiday weekend. Plus, Dave will probably be showing Red Bull soapbox races. It's the easy programming that they're like, we've already got it in the library. Let's shove it out there. And there is a good probability that if we're talking about shocking moments, funniest moments, most horrific moments, people you didn't expect to see naked moments, Cheggers and little Cheggers will be in there. It's amazing. I, I had this sort of, oh God, yeah, of course, naked Cheggers. It was around this time. And all of a sudden, like the, like the flush of memories from around that time. I don't, I don't know if I watched Naked Jungle at the time when it aired, but I do remember all the fallout of it. And yeah, you're right. Like it, well, it's because he wasn't wearing any pants. And, and it being featured on various other different shows and stuff as well. I probably, I, I'm probably, there was some memory of me that's like, no, you did watch it, but it might just be, no, you remember everything around it that has made you think that you actually did watch it in context. I am not sure I watched it in context. I I, I think I mainly know it via the memory. Yes. So uh, let's look at the show that we're going to be discussing today, Bits. So this began actually not that long after Games Master was off the air. Its first series and its first episode was broadcast in July of 1999, which is only really 18 months after Games Master is off the air. So Channel 4 no longer have Games Master because they don't want to make it anymore, but they clearly do still have an interest in the video game sphere because video games are still massively popular. So you've kind of got two things there. You've got Channel 4's wanting to have a video game uh, TV show to trying to capitalize on the fact that it's a very popular thing and a very mainstream thing. And you've also got their for later, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, block of programming, I guess, which aired sort of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And the idea of for later was these are shows that are on when you get back from the pub with a kebab in your hand. Like that's basically the way that they pitched it. The other way of looking at it is if you know Cartoon Network and you know Adult Swim. Same idea is that, well, Cartoon Network is cow and chicken and, or was that Nickelodeon? You know what I mean? It's yeah, yeah. that kind of like, it might be a little bit edgier, but it is kids cartoon. Then you get to Adult Swim and it's Space Ghost and it's Sea Lab and it's Aqua Teen Hunger Force and it's the Brack Show and it's all that stuff. Harvey Birdman, yeah. Yeah. And then actually when we talked about um, Bravo, when we talked about the whole the television show the, the television station switching over and now it was bravo programming later at night it's that idea of well we're technically the same channel we're on the same frequency we're on the same number but we want to delineate ourselves because if nothing else it's a marketing push it makes it look like we're creating entire programming to appeal to an entirely separate demographic you know those people. Yeah. And I get every person who has written about this has used that phrase as well. Designed for people who have just got back from the pub and have a kebab in their hand and are just watching telly. And that is the target market that Bits is going after, as was um, the kind of the program that preceded this, Vids. And Vids almost has a bit of a connection as to how um, Alex Krotowski gets on 
the show. And I think the most remarkable thing about Bits as well is that this began its life June of 99, and then by 2001, it's done. So it's only on the air for like two years. But in those two years, it's got five series. One of the more maddening parts of that, one of the more insane parts of that, is that series one ends on August 20th, 1999, and series two airs on August 27th, 1999. Like, even things that run almost all year round, like uh, let's take a show that I mentioned to you the other day when we were talking about something else, Last Week Tonight. It airs for almost an entire year. Even they get a longer break than that between series. Like that is, and, That's not even a break. That's literally just next week's episode. It's seven days later, but it is still considered series two of the show. There must have been a little bit of a production break. No, no, that's, that's literally it. It aired. Because the, the way that these shows were made as well is that they were made the week that they aired. So they would be given the games on the Monday and Tuesday. They would play them. Then it would have production meetings on Wednesday, film everything on Thursday, and then it would be made and edited to go out on the Friday night. Man, they have they had even worse turnarounds than we did. Yeah, like they were like I was listening to an interview with, with Alex on uh, the Retro Hour podcast, and she was like, "It was just a mad production schedule. It was just your week was dedicated to making this one show. It wasn't like Games Master where they just made all of the shows in advance, and then you know filmed some extra stuff afterwards, and then filmed the reviews and stuff afterwards. No, this was like you know Gonzo style filmmaking. You make you decide what you're going to do on the Monday, and then by the Friday you put out on TV. One thing I do like about Bits is they were relatively consistent as well because series. Series 1, 12 episodes. Series 2, 12 episodes. Series 3, 12 episodes. Series 4, 12 and a half episodes. There's an episode 0 of kind of like best of bits that you weren't meant to see. And then Series 5, 12 episodes. It is mildly maddening that we don't have all of bits to go and look at. Uh, we are doing Series 4, Episode 1, because it was the most readily complete available in the best quality available. But even if you look at various sites that provide bootleg DVDs and similar, Series 4 and Series 5, those are the only two that appear out there. Series 1, 2, and 3, apart from some clips and some really, really poor quality versions on YouTube in multiple parts, is at the moment, at least, lost to the ether. And if you're listening to this and you're going, oh, well, actually, I've got all of bits on VHS. Get in touch. Let's get yeah. this shit archived before those tapes deteriorate. I was going to say, get that up on YouTube now, because you'll find a market that'll be looking to watch it, looking to find this sort of thing. Because I was, you know, I was looking around when we decided that this is what we were going to do after Games Master had finished. There was like a list of shows I knew we should do, like Bits, Thumb Bandits, When Games Attack, and, you know, looking at all these sorts of shows and stuff. And I was like, well, we've definitely got to look at Bits because this is, I find it to be a very interesting show, particularly looking back on because it is almost sort of in a way the show that Games Master probably could have become. Because, you know, one of the things that Dominic had talked about was doing the late night version of Games Master. And here we are just 18 months after Games Master goes off the air. And this is a late night video game show that has got swearing in it. And it is, it's lad culture heavy. Even though this is hosted by three women, it's lad culture. They are doing lad culture things. They are down at the pub. They're using peanuts that you buy at the bar as their scoring system. They are talking about like, oh, we've done this competition, but actually we got too pissed last night. So we've just written a load of nonsense down. And these are the questions you've got to answer. It is a lad culture show that 
yeah, Gamesmaster probably would have looked like in some way had they got the late night version of it. To use a colloquialism of the time, Ladette. It was Ladette culture. Absolutely, yeah. I, I found a, a blog post that was writing about this that I think kind of sums up a lot of the sort of the ideas and themes of bits. And they, they write, and I, I apologize, it's an Irish blogger whose name I will not attempt to uh, pronounce because I will just do it very badly. But rest assured, it will be linked to in the show notes. Um, but they write, bits was very much about its charismatic host, the girl power tone of the show delivering from its trio of attractive presenters in the first season. Alex Kratoski, Emily Newton Dunn, and Claudia Trimmed. While the former pair were serious and knowledgeable gamers with connections to the emerging industry in Britain, the German-born Trimmed was a jobbing TV host and model brought in to give the series some non-geek glamour. By season two, she'd seemingly been replaced by Emily Booth, another non-gamer, though one with a background in acting and a strong interest in cult cinema. For many fans, the addition of Booth and the new chemistry between the three marked the beginning of the definitive version of bits and the series that we're looking at at the moment has those three it is alex emily booth or just booth as she is credited as and emily dunn you can't have two emily's one of them's got to change her name and booth booth that that got a good chuckle out of me because i like you i'm sure are familiar with emily booth's work horror channel various cult film presentations i think she's still the voice of the horror channel to this day like she does a lot of the links to be has to be i mean my my like not my emily booth thing whenever i think of her is that first evil dead dvd box set that came out and she hosted basically the special features disc that's in there and there's a very good documentary it's essentially like an hour-long documentary about all three movies that is whenever you say to me emily booth that's the first thing that pops into my mind she was also one of the faces of channel we mentioned earlier bravo uh shock movie massacre i think it was and she was in one of the mock trailers that appeared between death proof and planet terror she was in the mock trailer for don't which i remember going into that not knowing and then just going ah yeah i know that person i know not, not personally but you know i've seen her on the telly yeah, seen her in loads of various different things. I actually forgot that she was part of Bits until I was watching this, and I was like, oh my God, it's Emily Booth. But of the other two hosts that appear on alongside Emily Booth, we've got the other Emily, Emily Dunn, who is mainly known on television for this, but left television, started working in the gaming industry itself, including roles that saw her as a producer on a personal favourite of mine, the Burnout series over at Criterion Games. I, I, I like the fact that when people write about this show, they kind of highlight Emily Dunn and Alex as the the two gamers, the, the two knowledgeable gamers here. But actually, like by Alex's own admission, it's really only Emily that's the actual sort of like gaming enthusiast that were, was on the on the show. And you can see that because Emily is obviously very knowledgeable on this show, but then left this because what she actually was more interested in doing was working within the industry which is what she went on to go and do alex on the other hand was she played games because she you know her dad used to go to a laundrette in in, uh, louisiana and there was an arcade next to it so she got very good with you know centipede and, and millipede and frogger and all those sort of things but when she came to the uk in late 1997 she was actually more interested funny enough given that emily booth is on the show cult films because what she wanted to do was be a presenter on vids and 
to those who didn't get the job on vids because they wanted two guys hosting it instead, they said to her, well, we're doing this other show. Do you want to do this instead? And she's like, yeah, I'll give it a go. I've got literally nothing else to do because I've literally moved here with no plan. So I'll take anything I can get. And she was knowledgeable enough about games to get the gig, but she would not have classified herself as the knowledgeable one about games. That is actually Emily Dunn's role. I will say generally, throughout this episode and bits of other episodes that I watched, it doesn't for the most part show. All three of them come across like they are gamers or they know games. They present very well. They host very well. They, and I mean this with no disrespect whatsoever, because I do it. They bullshit very well. If you can appear like you are knowledgeable on something, if you can sell yourself as knowing what you're talking about, you can host anything. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think they do a very good job of it, particularly as well. And we'll get into it when we get into the show. The majority of bits is done in one takes with one camera shot, just, just moving between them. This is not a multi-camera shoot. This is one camera. And like these are long links as well, particularly that opening link. And oh, it's just, man. it's a long opening link and it's all three of them delivering their lines and not one of them feels like they're out of place or like is fumbling or is like, oh, that's close enough. We'll get to the end. No, they absolutely just, just 100% nail it. Um, we'll get to talk a bit more about Alex again, because we're going to do an episode of Thumb Bandits. And that is what she goes on to do after this. Bits uh, is taken off the air in April of 2001. And Thumb Bandits airs not that long after that. And November of yeah, that year. So like exactly, six yeah. months and a bit of change. Yeah. And it's really like the question of like, why did bits get taken off the air? And Alex says on the Retro Hour podcast, is like, I have no idea. They just didn't commission us again. And then we just did Thumb Bandits instead. By all accounts, you know, bits was a very, very popular show. And it was a very sort of highly viewed show, particularly in that four later slot, you know, compared to what you know Vids was doing. But uh, the the interesting thing about Alex for me is she uh, has said in interviews that she thinks Spaced is like the greatest British comedy ever made. And she met Simon Pegg, and Simon Pegg told her that when he and Jessica were writing Spaced, they had decided that Simon's character Tim was a massive fan of Bits. And Alex was his favorite bits girl. And they had that as part of like the character build for Tim. And she was like, that's incredible. Like I'm in a very, very small, minute way, a part of Spaced. This is a title sequence that, I mean, I'll I'll read you what my notes are here. It is an intro where the 90s are trying to die and the 2000s are taking over, but they don't really know. The 2000s does not know what its identity is yet. So it's trying new things, but it's still 90s. Also, to use a joke that I've used for a number of things recently, the theme music is what happens if you ask an AI to write Jimi Hendrix's Crosstown Traffic. It is so bizarre because, yeah, the title sequence is 90s and noughties and it's chaotic and it's camera movements and it's flash cuts and all this stuff. But meanwhile, the music in the background is like a 10 second loop of the guitar riff from Crosstown Traffic with some word in it that is not the word bits. That would have been too easy. It's more just like a grunt into a microphone or 
the singer or whoever was in the recording studio stubbed his toe on an amplifier. I like it, but I don't know why. If you had told me that this upload of bits to YouTube had been copyright flagged, and so they just put a different song over the top of the intro credits, I would believe you, because it does not match what's on screen. Whereas you watched a YouTube version, I downloaded the version from archive.org, which is slightly higher quality. And like you, I would have believed a copyright claim on YouTube, meaning they've just dubbed it over. Like maybe they actually originally used Crosstown Traffic. I don't know quite how they would have afforded that from the Hendrix estate, but hey, whatever. But nope, this is just a um, a, a, a very much a inspired by. Hello and welcome to another series of bits. Over the next three months, we'll tell you everything you need to know about computer games. But don't worry if you're not a classic hardcore button basher, because we'll be sparing you all that train spotter nerdy info and dishing the shit that counts. And with more and more interesting hardware hitting the shelves every single week from super consoles and mini consoles, web TV and video phones, you can expect that computer games are going to be coming at you bigger, harder, longer and faster than ever before. And we have our intro to this. So the idea of bits is Emily Booth. Those are two separate people. So Emily, comma, Booth and Alex live together in the same flat. They are housemates. They are roommates. And they are video game fans who are going to tell you about the latest video games. It's less of a, it's not a challenge show. It's not really a review show either. It is more of just a news show, I guess. They basically are just here to tell you about the latest bits of gaming news. So in this episode, they're going to look at the PlayStation 2 and how that will affect the Dreamcast. They're going to tell you about online gaming, and they're going to tell you about some beat-em-ups that are coming out for the PlayStation. But it's less about, I am going to do a review of this game, or we are going to have a feature on this game. It's just, no, this is just some gaming news that you know. If you watch this show, you will get all of the week's latest gaming news. As I say, essentially the way that it's pitched. Yeah, this show has more in common with Knights of Plenty than it does with actual Games Master itself. And again, not a criticism, it's just the style and the tone. I mean, the episode starts with the three hosts scootering into shot, presumably from elsewhere in the flat. So these are three ladettes that scooter around their home, which is pretty rock and roll actually. And it was, uh, you were surprised to know, not filmed on location in a flat. Instead, this was filmed at... An asylum. This was filmed at a shutdown asylum. Hey, so many great things have been. I used to live on the former site of an asylum that was used as a location for a number of things, including Doctor Who in the 70s and 80s. They're, they're very useful spaces. And also, let's not forget, Games Master shot in a prison. And this is one camera shot. You know, it follows the three of them scootering in, and then Alex does a link. And then it cuts to Boof, who does a link. And then it cuts to Emily, who does a link. And then it cuts back to Alex, who does another link. And Emily, and then this and the other. And they sort of, you know, make their jokes and this and the other and tell you, here is what's coming up in the show. All done in one take, all done in one go. And given that how tight the production was on each episode, I would wager you probably got your one shot to do this. And if you flubbed it, we're just going to keep going until we get it right. I, I can't imagine they got many goes at this. It's pretty impressive but it is also man style of the time because the camera is constantly moving and 
I went and I watched some clips of Vids as well because Vids did a, a and I remember this quite uh, vividly actually did a Godzilla season. Hello and welcome to Vidzilla for the first of our seven journeys into the realm of the original big lizard. Oi. So if you're expecting to see any of that computer-generated menace from the recent shitball American remake, Oi. you can forget it as it's blokes in dodgy rubber suits from here on in. <sighs> Fuck Jim Morrison. Because Godzilla was the original Lizard King, wasn't he? <laughs> now, I know there was a preposterously portioned ape in an earlier incarnation who stole it to people's hearts and minds, King Kong, but he just climbed skyscrapers. Godzilla, on the other hand, pulled them down and destroyed cities with panache. He destroyed everything. Although, I'm not sure whether he was a deliberately belligerent Visigothic vandal or simply a pissed-up, stupid, wanky old lizard stumbling from pillar to post high on hydrogen fallout. But those are the kind of questions that we are here to address and ask. So join me and Professor Steph as we bring you Godzilla! And I went and I watched a clip of Vid's introducing their uh their godzilla season and it's shot in the exact same way and i was like oh yeah this is just twas the style at the time the first time i watched this episode in preparation for this podcast i was on a bus stood up on a bus i had to stop watching because the bus combined with the camera moves started to make me motion sick. That is the level of rocking and backing and forthing and toing and throwing. Because it's not just moving in and out. It's tilting one way. It's tilting the other way. It's When we say constantly moving, it is constantly moving. I, I One of my notes was, and again, I know it was a style at the time, was for fuck's sake, can someone buy them a tripod? Hey, that's, that's too much money. And also, given the time frame, that's too much hassle to set up onto a tripod. I can't argue with that. But as you pointed out, they swear. And also, you can see that this is going for the new generation of gamer, for the PlayStation, for the clubber, because they literally say, we're not going to give you all that nerdy shit. We're just going to be giving you the shit that counts. And I'm just like, they're allowed to swear. Luca, we're allowed to swear. Does this mean that Sonic will no longer cover me when I say the word fuck? I think so. I think because this is four later, I guess we're on UCP later. Okay. What about if I say the word uh, Well, we'll find out in the edits, I guess. But Alex also goes on to say that with all the tech advances, video games are going to be coming at us bigger, longer, harder and faster. So we can swear, but we can still make cock jokes as well. It's good to know. It's good to know. And again, it's part of that ladette culture. I, there are multiple times I wrote in my notes, oh, they know who their target audience is. You know, Alex has, has said in interviews and stuff, it was great because we you know, made a show. It's three females. So we were able to bring in like a female audience. But I would wager, and the way that this show is pitched, it is a 99.5% male demographic that is tuning into this show because not only is it, wahey hey, the lads, video games and that, it's also, wahey hey, the lads, three fit birds talking about video games, ends it. But we also, in addition to the cameras, we also start to butt up against the editing style because we get the kind of nerd shaming, which is kind of what it is, and we get the swearing, cool, we get the cock joke, cool. And then we get, I guess technically this is what's coming up, but they don't do a very good job, at least to me, watching this 20 years hence, of setting up that's what they actually are doing. Because there's a brief verbal note about does the PlayStation 2 mean the end of days for the Dreamcast? They take a look at upcoming internet-enabled DC titles and the top three beat-em-ups on the slab for the PS2 at launch. And then we see them throwing a copy of Pokemon into the bin, which I'm guessing is a running joke. Pokemon. 
Now let that be the end of it. It has to be either that or it is just a bit of commentary on the fact that we're sick of, you know, again, none of that nerdy shit around here like Pokemon. And I, I wonder if, if some of that is just we're sick of hearing about Pokemon because they make a joke about it later on as well. It's like, oh, bloody hell, I started talking about Pokemon again. Damn it. I mean, Games Master called it. No one's going to care about those Japanese pocket monsters, Luke. Yeah, and here we are 18 months later and Pokemon is so big that the next show that follows on from Games Master is like, don't want to talk about it because everyone's talking about it. But subtle social commentary on the latest Japanese import aside, we then move on to gaming news? The I news, guess. yeah. So, I mean, because it's weird, isn't it? Because this is the news desk portion of the show, of a show that is just about news, apart from the bit that comes later on, which is about hand-to-eye coordination with the with a gladiator's peripheral, a giant cotton bud, and a boat. And a, knowing that they basically did do the turnaround on this in a week, a lot of things in this episode make sense, and I applaud them for the fact that on a weekly basis they managed to churn out a 30-minute piece of programming on very low budget and keep it somewhat coherent in style. And while there are some errors that, you know, it's it's kind of our gig, we're going to point them out, it's no worse than what we saw from Games Master, which at various times was a much bigger production. For a year now, we've enjoyed the superior graphics and speed of Sega's Dreamcast. Next year, old-timers Nintendo and newcomers Microsoft will be shaking up the scene with their brand new beefed-up machines. In the meantime, Sony will be unleashing their new creation onto the public. It's the PlayStation 2. But we get into the news, and in the past year, we've been able to enjoy the Dreamcast. Next year, we'll see latest entries from the old man of gaming, Nintendo, and this crazy upstart company like microsoft they're getting into games what's that all about luke it'll never take off that's that's a 3do waiting to happen (laughs) but while we are between the dreamcast and nintendo and whatever microsoft are up to sony have their new machine ready to unleash on the public but if you are japanese you already got it in the spring. And then we get some clips of the PlayStation 2 launching in Japan, which was a massive deal. I'm kind of glad we get to touch on it a little because we talked about the Saturn, the PlayStation, the Nintendo 64 launch, and now here we have the second generation console for Sony. And on the first day, it pulled in like the equivalent of $250 million. It kicked the Dreamcast's opening day sales into the dirt. It was a massive, massive like marketing and technological and sales and gaming feat. And really, while we are here saying, oh, is it going to be trouble for the Dreamcast? The answer is yes. The Dreamcast is dead. Sega know it. Most of the publishers know it. There are a number of games mentioned in this episode as coming to the Dreamcast. Luke, you know what I'm going to be saying to you later? Because they ain't coming out. And the console couldn't be found on shelves for love nor money. And it is a thing... And it is a pattern that repeats itself in North America and shortly in Europe. They even say that in this news piece here, which is just that, like, yeah, it's going to be out here in a couple of weeks' time, but shops are already sold out based on just pre-orders alone. Because the PS2 was was massive. And the Dreamcast problem from the very second it launched was that there were certain publishers that were not going to make titles for it because they had such a terrible time with the Saturn. So there are no 
EA football games. There are no EA sports games on the Dreamcast. Already off the bat, you are going to struggle. And you know where they are? They're over on the PlayStation. Do you know what else is there? ISS. Like it's it's just title after title after title. And you kind of look at this episode and it's all about, you know, launch titles and things like that and games you can get. And it's like, that's a banger, that's a banger, that's a banger. And there's every single one of them is blowing anything that's got the Dreamcast that's going to be coming out of the Dreamcast out the water. Hey, Dreamcast has got Choo Choo Rocket. What else do you need? I always felt a bit cheeky with that because Choo Choo Rocket, you know, if people traded that in, you know, I mentioned Game Station a, a few episodes back with Panzer Dragon Saga. Choo Choo Rocket, again, was one of those games that would actually scan, but it would only scan at like 20p or something because it was a freebie. And there were a, a, quite a few people would often point out to us, it's a bit cheeky that you're selling Choo Choo Rocket, considering that it was a free game. It was, in fact, the only retro title, every retro title, basically, in uh, in, game sp- in game station that wasn't a scannable one. $1.99, buy one, get one free. And even if they did scan, a lot of them were just $1.99, get one, buy one, get one free. Apart from Choo Choo Rocket, which was sold for 99p. Buy one, get one free. Buy one Choo Choo Rocket, you get a second Choo Choo Rocket free. And we there genuinely people would come to me like, bit cheeky this, isn't it? This was a free game. It's like, ah, I don't make the rules. What do you want me to do? Just put it in there, just like take it if you want it. I mean, I imagine with that many copies of Choo Choo Rocket, that probably ended up happening somewhere down the line. But to touch upon the PS2 and part of its success at launch, because launched in March in Japan, by the end of the month, all 1.4 million units of initial inventory gone. Obviously, we've talked a little in the past about the fact that the DVD playback capability was a big factor when it came to the PS2. It's mentioned in this episode here. But also, it was only the second console in video game history up until that point that offered backwards compatibility without the need for a master drive or, you know, one of those various additional bits of hardware that would let you play other systems game on your new console because you could take your PS1 game, slap them in the PS2 and off they'd go. It is amazing that Sony were the ones to do that. One of the Nintendo's big, you know, failing points of the Super Nintendo, one of the things that they came under fire hugely for with the release of the Super Nintendo, which Sega then took advantage of by selling the Master System adapter so you could play your Master System games on the, on the you know, in America, then the Genesis here in the Mega Drive, that people and parents complained, I've got all of these games for the NES and you're now asking me to buy a whole new console with a whole new set of games, and I can't play any of these old NES titles on the new system. And it like Nintendo got, you know, really got hugely in trouble for this and had to go through a coupon scheme in order to try and appease those parents that complained to them because they felt that they were being, I mean, and I, 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 these aren't the words that I would use, but they would have used ripped off by the Japanese, would have been the way that they would have phrased it. And it is stunning then that here we are, 2001, with the release of the PlayStation 2, and it's really the only console that's doing it because the Saturn didn't have backwards capability with the, the Mega Drive. The, uh, the, the Dreamcast didn't have backwards capability with the Saturn. The N64 doesn't have it with the SNES. And it's just, but the PlayStation 2 has backwards capability with the PS1, and that was a huge driving force because I've got a PlayStation with all of my titles here, and I'm going to get my PS2 in 2002, and I can still play all of these games that I'm still really loving. I can play Final Fantasy VII. I can play Resident Evil 2, as well as my new games. And to look forward in time a little bit, the PlayStation 3 comes around, and that initial PlayStation 3, which I've got one of downstairs, and I've fully refurbished, that can play your PlayStation 3 games, 
But Luke, what else? It can play your PS2 games. And what else? It can play your PS1 games. Three generations of PlayStation, all in one box. You'd think that would be Sony going, we have the way forward. But no, because one or two hardware revisions later, suddenly the PS3 can play PlayStation 3 games and PlayStation 1 games. And then the PS4 comes out and it can play PlayStation 4 games. And then the PS5 comes out and it can play PlayStation 5 games and PlayStation 4 games. But the concept of playing PS3, PS2, PS1, ooh, you're going to have to rebuy those games online or pay for a PlayStation Plus solution. Well, I was going to say, that's where they found the smarts of just like, well, we can just resell the games as downloads because some some schmucks will buy them and I'm one of them. Microsoft with the Series X did actually go a little bit better because there are quite a number of games. One is all Xbox One games are backwards compatible with the Series X, but some Xbox 360 and some original Xbox games are as well. It's not all of them because literally what they've had to do is they've had to write patches for those games to make them work. But I appreciated that they put the effort in rather than just going, nah, we're just going to resell you that shit. Time for the once mighty Dreamcast to be very afraid. Is the PlayStation 2 going to send out on a slow and painful death? Well, that all depends on you. Here are the pros and the cons. Well, for £299, your PlayStation 2 will not only run your games, but also play your DVD movies. Your Dreamcast can't offer that attraction. No, but then again, you can pick up a Dreamcast for roughly half the price. So what does that leave? The internet. Internet access on these machines means logging on to games against opponents from around the whole world, as well as all the usual email malarkey and shopping without the bags. Anyway, the internet situation is pretty clear. PlayStation's online world doesn't appear until next year, modem not included, while you can surf right now on the Dreamcast. So that's what they're saying here with the, the PlayStation, you know, it's got the, it can play your brand new games, but also play DVDs, which the Dreamcast cannot. However, you can get your Dreamcast for half the price and, crucially, the Dreamcast has online capability. And Emily Booth brings out a rosary phone and a globe to be her visual representation of the internet and the idea that you can play games with people online as well as do shopping and do emails and stuff and it's really funny as well because you can literally see her stumble over her line somewhat and then she pulls her face and shrugs and then emily dunn carries on and it's like yep we've got a very tight turnaround that's the take we're using they do say that the places do will be online later next year um when you buy your modem separately but they are making a big thing here about how the fact that the Dreamcast is online now and has got games that you can play now, that's going to be a huge selling point. And funny enough, actually, that I mentioned that Retro Hour podcast that, that Alex did. She said that when you know she started doing bits, she was not that impressed with the PlayStation 2. She was not that impressed with anything else that was coming out PC gaming-wise, but was mad impressed with the Dreamcast because the Dreamcast was an online thing. It was this little box that was in her living room that was connected to people around the world and also the little like VMU things. She felt that it was way more of a complete package than any of the other consoles were. I love the VMUs. I thought they were a really, really clever idea. I mean, the PlayStation did have an equivalent to a vmu but it was very limited in its support and quite expensive i only owned one because it worked with fire pro wrestling 
on the PlayStation. I literally got one just so I could have a little Vessler Tamagotchi with me. But the VMU, you used them in games. You could take games with you. You had you had more virtual pets, more stuff like that. I think Fire Pro Wrestling for the Dreamcast also did stuff like that. I just want to briefly pull you up on something because I also made a note about the props to demonstrate the internet, which is a telephone and a globe. Do you know what the icon was for the internet in Windows 95? It was a phone and a globe. Yeah, that's why they did it. They didn't just do it because it's like, oh, some random bullshit. They literally recreated the internet icon from Windows with physical props. Although, nitpick, it was a push-button phone. I think it's probably more coincidence than it was intentional, but I, I take your point. Looking at it, I did think that internet icon would have looked way cooler with a rotary phone. No one looks nostalgic at push-button phones. You don't get to Dixon's and you get old-school Bakelite push-button phones. You get your rotaries. However, while the fact that Dreamcast is online, there's only so many games you can play online, Choo Choo Rocket being one of them and Black and White. Black and White will be brought up again later on. And then we sort of jump from that to the launch titles or launch titles and beyond for the PlayStation 2, kicking off with Gran Turismo 2000, or as it's currently known, Gran Turismo 2000 before it gets its name change. For the definitive word in racing games, few titles come close to the Gran Turismo series. The polygon detail is simply stunning this time round, but that's just about all that's new. You'll have to press hard on the touch-sensitive features of the new PlayStation 2 joypad to squeeze any more juice out of this game. As yet, a release date is unconfirmed, but don't expect this new GT until next year. I guess they'll have to call it Gran Turismo 2001. Presented by... Konami. What? Yeah, so it's got a little a, a credit thing at the bottom and it's like footage supplied by Konami available on the PlayStation 2. And yeah, that's, that, 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 that's, that's not quite correct. We used to pull Games Master up on the regular for its errors, its lack of captions, the occasional just blank blue screen, particularly in Series 1. So I can't be too harsh on bits here, but this and a few other moments, I'm going to assume that if they did notice them, the tight deadline meant they just went, we ain't got time for that. We ain't got time to fix that. We ain't got time to swap those boxes around. We're just going to roll with it. But we see Gran Turismo 2000 here, which eventually goes on to become Gran Turismo 3A spec. And they say it's a launch title-ish, certainly an early title, but it doesn't actually come out until March yeah, the, the, of next year. And that's kind of why I think this segment here doesn't really make this doesn't work as a segment because they keep saying like oh well let's look at the launch titles or let's look at the beat-em-ups that are available at launch but what they're actually talking about are titles that are coming out for the console emily dunn introduced this segment as launch titles and beyond they really should have just said here are some titles that are going to come out for the console because the caption says launch-ish title you know, next year. In the copy they're reading, they say there's no launch date yet. But also, wow, big slam on Gran Turismo of, well, it looks pretty. There's nothing new though. Which, in the case of Gran Turismo 2000, is kind of true. Yeah, it's got it's actually got less in it, if anything. Yeah, Gran Turismo 2000 in particular was just, can we shine up Gran Turismo 2 to make use of the extra PlayStation 2 hardware? Gran Turismo 3 A-Spec did go quite a step beyond what you saw in Gran Turismo 2000, but that's also because it had about an extra year's worth of development. Yeah, it's a smaller game in the sense of 
it, it looks much nicer, but because it looks so much nicer, there's less space to have a, more cars. So it, there's around 180 cars in Gran Turismo 3 compared to you know the previous gen's version of Gran Turismo 2, which had 650. And bearing in mind that Gran Turismo's whole appeal is the cars, that does feel like a slight downgrade. However, it does look very nice. And that's the other selling point of Gran Turismo, I guess. It does look pretty. And, you know, it sold 14 million copies. So clearly there was plenty of market for it. You've got to suck it to somebody, and who better to give you some top tips than a beat em up like Tekken Tag Tournament? Round one, fight. Faster than before, more spectacular than ever, and now with a team player feature. Yes, in this latest Tekken, not only do you get lots of support from computer-generated bystanders, but you also get to team up two against two. Hence, the Tekken tag. Uh, tag. So the girls are now in a Virgin Mega Store. And we throw to Tekken Tag Tournament, but never mind that shit. We'll talk about Tekken Tag Tournament later on, I guess. Yeah, the most we get is faster, more spectacular, and now with a team player featuring two-on-two action. Hence the use of the word tag. And as the, and as you said, they're like, well, it's not the only option, though. We've got a murder to commit on one fighting game franchise. More on that later. So instead, uh, Booth tells us that uh, if you want some of those less earnest, quote-unquote, oriental action uh that you want for instead you want something for your coke and hot dog brain give this a go instead throwing to ready to rumble round two ready to rumble started life on the dreamcast nearly a year ago this sequel has also been versioned for the playstation 2 which is nice as it certainly is an unusual game combining full-on beat up aggro with some of the dumbest comedy touches you tame you train they bust up their brains men women big folks and skinny folks all collide together in this update of a colorful classic and while they highlight it on the playstation 2 here they do also say that you know it started life on the dc it also came out on the playstation it also came out on the nintendo 64 eventually and there was a version for the game boy advance it's not quite the kind of killer rap i mean if you look at the titles that they've already included gran turismo and tekken tag are way more impressive because they're just playstation 2 here we are right at the start of the ps2's life and already we're getting we got that game from the dreamcast the dreamcast isn't doing terribly well can we port it to the PlayStation 2? Can we do a bit of a hatchet job on that? I, I quite like the Ready to Rumble games. Yeah, this isn't the last of them. And one of the things that they did go in for was um, unlockable characters, often celebrities. Uh, Ready to Rumble 2, I believe, included Shaq and Michael Jackson. Jackson, in fact, did the motion capture himself and the voice work as well. Which is, uh, I mean, that, that's, that's a video game that I won't be streaming as any part of a retro kind of themed Twitch night. But also importantly, Michael Buffer's in there as well as himself, because if you tell Michael Buffer, hey, we need someone to come into a studio and shout ready to rumble into a microphone, he'll be there at a drop of a hat. He is the Tony Slattery of ring announcers. In fairness as well, he also owns the phrase. So if you want to use Ready to Rumble, you have to get in Michael Buffer. I did not know he trademarked the phrase. Yeah, it's his phrase. So, and, and particularly in that style as well. And I think when um, Dominic Diamond does it in Games Master, I was like, I don't know who the buffer wasn't watching because he'll come after you. The next game in this PlayStation 2 rundown is just plain odd. Once there was a two-dimensional land called Oddworld. 
from it came a game called Abe's Odyssey, in which a disgruntled meatpacker started a revolution. This was followed up with Abe's Exodus, until finally they cooked up a third in the series and a new character called Munch. The game is called Munch's Odyssey. The chief innovation of this PlayStation 2 title is that for the first time, Oddworld is a 3D experience. And blimey, does it look good. This, by the way, is not the pre-game movie, but the game itself. Wow. And the next game in this countdown is, well, it's just plain odd. It's Oddworld, Munch's Odyssey, which is available January 2001. Yeah, not on the PlayStation, though, and it's only not then either. No, because... This game, originally destined for the PlayStation, like the previous Old Worlds before it, eventually turned up as a launch title for the Xbox. It does get it eventually does end up on a Sony platform though, 10 years later when it is ported to the PlayStation 3 and the Vita. Truly the connoisseur's way to play the Old World games on the PlayStation Vita. Like this what I, they really are putting over these clips though because, you know, they even say, look, this isn't a movie this isn't like the intro video for the game no this is the actual gameplay and i bet it does look really good it it feels very next gen oh yeah it does and i loved the first two old world games the first old world in particular was a great little demo when you got it on a demo disc because luke you could run around as this little alien creature say follow me and fart and now you can do that in 3d it's a nice step up farting in 3d what will they think of next but it's time to get the scarfs, bottles and pies out because it's footy time with ISS 2000. ISS 2000 is arguably the football simulator of the game's connoisseur. While the FIFA series is replete with real player details, ISS is pure football. You won't learn any facts to bore barmaid silly with down at the pub, but you will get an accurate treatment of the beautiful game. Some might say it's more accurate. If you're a blooter the ball at the pitch kind of player, then it's game over for you, pal, because this game won't stand for it. It is so interesting at this time that when we were going through Games Master, FIFA was it. But here we are in the year 2000, and FIFA isn't it. They changed what it is, and now what it is is ISS, International Superstar Soccer, which was always a great, great game, but... FIFA's a bit on the wane at the moment. It's not. It's become stale. Not that I can imagine that ever happening to FIFA now. Actually, given by what's going on with FIFA at the moment, it really can't be considered stale anymore. They've got to find a new development team. But ISS was a killer app. And whilst FIFA always had that kind of arcadey feel to it, games of this era, particularly this ISS, is a much more accurate simulation you can't just hoof it up the park and kick it in the goal. The game will actively punish you for that. You will just get demolished. And I remember playing this a bit. I had some fun with this one. I liked this era of ISS games. And I like the, the them talking about it here. A, they mentioned Pies and Bovril, um, which is really the best reason to go to a football game. I have not been to a football game since going vegetarian, so I will miss not being able to have a cup of Bovril. And or you know a, a, tra- a flask of bovril and a pie at halftime, especially going up to Goodison Scouse pie. That is an absolute must if you're going up there. Um, but beside that point, this again is highlighting 
they know who their target audience is. Because when describing this game, they say that it is, you know, for a football connoisseur, that is not full of boring facts that you will tell to barmaids that you're trying to impress. Because it's for the lads. This is this is exactly who this, this show is made for. And of course, they're talking about football and then talking about these things as well. And I like that this is a nice encapsulation of we know what this show is. I also love the expression they used of an accurate treatment of the beautiful game. I thought that was a really nice turn of phrase. So they then cut to a cafe area to throw to the next segment of this show, which is, I guess, the most review portion of the show. If the moral majority ever needed a scapegoat for clock tower psychos, Lee Harvey Oswald and the odd far-sighted delusional stalker, well, Konami's silent scope, the sniper sim, could just possibly be presented as the alleged main packer. But hey, what could be better than lining up your prey in the crosshairs and letting rip? At least they cast you as the good guy. It all began in the arcade halls. You know the routine, you know the game. It sits in the darkest, broodiest corner of your local arcade, surrounded by twitchy people in dark glasses. But don't be put off by the social freaks. Shove a coin in the slot, pick up your lovely big gun, and cream the bad guys with precision and excellent timing. I'm actually, particularly in the arcade, I quite like the Silent Scope series because not only is it a big arcade game, it's got a stupid gun peripheral and actually in the case of silent scope it's quite clever because you've got the big screen and then you look down the scope and it's zoomed in and your mind's eye is like oh it's zooming into the screen but it's not it's a separate screen inside the scope it's really clever particularly for 1999 when this game was originally released we're looking at the first of the games here and whilst it started in the arcade like a lot of arcade games it got the home port it's coming to the playstation 2 it's also on the Dreamcast, as we're shown footage of later. But it does lose something. Like, they're quite negative on the controls here, and I can entirely get it because I remember playing the Dreamcast version and going, no, no, it's okay. What shocked me the most about this segment, though, was the jokes. Like, we get this whole thing about the moral majority have been waiting for a game like this when it comes to Clock Tower Psychos. We get a John F. Kennedy assassination joke back and to the left indeed and we then get to go into this arcade which is really interesting because obviously throughout games master we saw the 90s arcade we saw the sega world we saw the namco fun parks but now here we see kind of an arcade that is still very much video games but you can tell the era of the playstation to a degree the dreamcast but also with the PlayStation 2 on the doorstep, the arcade is waning. This arcade looks far more like a gambling hall than it does a place to, you know, set up a row of 50Ps for Street Fighter 2. It also, you can kind of see in the background as well, it is more littered with those gimmicky style uh, games and stuff, those, those arcade gimmicks and whatnot. And Silent Scope is a good example of that. So we've had this in Games Match in the past where we've talked about the arcade games that they you know, displayed on the show that wouldn't have translated to the home market. Prop Cycle, for example, does not translate to the home market because the idea of it is you are doing this on a bike. Um, or Final Furlong, Rapid River. These are games that you should be playing down in the arcade for because you need to be sat within the big inflatable dinghy or on the bike or on the horse. And I think Silent Scope is in that category. 
because you're right like the the appeal of silent scope is you and alex even mentions it here you have that big screen then you have this huge scope gun with the butt literally resting against your shoulder and down you know if you look into the scope you have another lcd screen that is a zoomed in version of what is on the on the screen so it feels like you are actually controlling a real life uh, sniper scope that is massively lost when you put it into the home market it's not like converting time crisis or jurassic park lost world or Virtua cop where you have a light gun game this is heavily gimmick based and you are losing something in that and i think that is why like when i was looking up about the the, the home console version of silent scope game pros review of the ps2 version called it and this is a direct quote a must rent, which really is damning with faint praise. The Dreamcast is the first to deliver this bloody pulp to your living room. Sadly, the people who brought you the virtual fishing rods poo-pooed the idea of supplying a virtual assault weapon with this game. So there's no customized controller. But does that matter? Although the graphics are arcade perfect and the little animations of dudes falling off buildings gives you that same proud little tingle, nothing quite beats the feel of that toy gun butt lodged in your shoulder. Instead, you lock and load with the sniper vision that's already on screen, you move your cursor with the analog stick, and to get the full view, you press and hold the left trigger button. Hmm, not quite, but let's see how this game plays on the PlayStation. I love how they specifically reference the fishing peripheral for the Dreamcast of like, well, they made a fishing rod. Why can't they make a sniper rifle, Luke? I just don't understand. It is a good question, though. But hey, don't worry too much, because you can still shoot a man in the cock. <laughs> I love that of all the shots they show, they talk about headshots, and then they do shoot a man in the head. Just not that one. And then we cut across to the PS2 version, and it ain't much better, though the graphics are nice. Quote, the controls still suck. I've played Silent Scope on the Dreamcast, and most of the twitchiness of the controls I can put down to the fact that the Dreamcast analog stick is not the worst in the world, but it ain't great. The natural way to play this game would have been with a mouse peripheral, if you don't have an actual light gun which we'll go on to in actually just a very little bit uh, indeed and again it's more of that here's our target audience because alex's verdict of this is if flesh and blood ain't your body bag but you still like the <laughs> of the silencer and head down to your local arcade shove the goths out of the way and insert coin around 2000 i resemble that remark yeah again it's because the fucking nerds are down at the arcade so you with your kebab in your hand you should go down there give them a noogie and a little wet willy shove them out of the way and then you play and show what a proper bloke looks like you can rest your kebab on the cabinet next to it exactly yeah and then your mate dave will go get the pints in packet of peanuts for me will you dave lads 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 for years multiplayer console gaming has meant one thing a crowd of gamers huddle around a tv screen split into impossibly tiny quarters pc gamers have had it different with online games they didn't even need to be in the same room or even the same country now all that's about to change with a raft of new online games for the dreamcast 
First up is Fantasy Star Online. Originally a role-playing game for the Sega Saturn all those years ago, this has been rethought for the web. If the ad campaign is to be believed, it will have you communicating and gaming with all the six billion people on this planet. So our next segment is about the, we kind of sort of cut back to that idea of Dreamcast online capability and the games that you could be getting because you could be playing Perfect Dark on tiny screens or be like PC gamers and play it with your own monitor in your own bedroom and against people from all over the world. And we kind of get that kickstarted with Fantasy Star Online. And speaking of errors that are within this show, yeah, I, I didn't want to do the push my nose up well actually but well, actually, this was on the Mega Drive, not the Saturn. There was a Saturn collection, but it was a Saturn collection of well, actually, the Mega Drive games and the Master System game. Yeah, so but so well, actually, I've, I've, I'll stop shoving me glasses up the rim of my nose now. You had a week to make these games. Also, early days internet, you probably didn't have the resources that we have at our fingertips. Just so we don't get well, actually, you said you had a week to make these games. Yeah, yeah a week to make these shows. I'm, I, you know, but we can edit that out. <laughs> Yeah, we edit stuff. The remasters were pretty cool on the Sega Saturn, even though they were Japan only. And maybe that is why that information didn't translate through, because the Fantasy Star Collection didn't get released over here. Although they did all appear on various Sega collections. I think there was the PlayStation 3 and 360 era Sega collection. And on that one, they just went, we're putting all of the Fantasy Star games on that one up until like the end of the Mega Drive era, so that'd be four. They're good games, and Fantasy Star Online, whether you're playing it on the Dreamcast or the later GameCube version, it's a great game. When I got my Dreamcast, uh, uh, bought it secondhand when I was working at GameStation, so this has been 2007, if you'd have put that on the internet, there would have still been people connected to Fantasy Star Online. It's still played now. People have reverse engineered it, so private servers exist, and you can go and play Fantasy Star Online, which I love. I love... There is always that concern, and it happens a lot with modern games, of games as a service. What happens when those services get shut down? And in some cases, games just like cease to have any value other than as a coaster. But in the case of Fantasy Star Online, smart boffins are going, no, nah, look, we're running our own servers. It's all gravy. It's all good. And I think Fantasy Star Online, much like World of Warcraft, has has became what well, was so popular and become so popular and become so beloved that they have actually overshadowed the series that they spun off from. World of Warcraft is more beloved and is way more popular than the real-time strategy Warcraft games like Warcraft and Warcraft 2 and that. Fantasy Star Online is more beloved and probably better remembered than those turn-based RPG fantasy star games on the Mega Drive. I mean, certainly, because also it's more accessible. I mean, just you look at this game and you look how Fantasy Star Online is displayed in this show. It looks great. It made me want to boot it up on the Dreamcast or the GameCube and give it a go. The mistake that they make with that Mega Drive thing, and you mentioned the, the Konami mistake that they made earlier, I think, again, that speaks to a lot about bits that it's not really made by people who are... Like, I think you could say the Games Master was made by people who were passionate about video games and wanted to talk about video games a lot. I don't think bits was ever made by people who are passionate about video games. It was made by people who knew that they were popular and wanted to make a show about them. And because of that, 
there are mistakes like that, but also because the target audience that they're appealing to, lads with their kebabs, they're not going to notice that. So doesn't matter. It's only going to be weird nerds like us that were probably goths hanging down arcades in 2000 that are going to then pick up on it 20 years later. That's exactly it. But anyway, let's move on to something they definitely can't get wrong. Let's move on to the next game. Well, the hardcore can just pick up their toys and get back in their prams because black and white is about to hit the Dreamcast. Undoubtedly, Black and White is one of the most awesome games ever. In the game, you play God and are given a creature, which you can take online with you. My only concern is the controls. The game was originally conceived for the PC and an ingenious mouse-only control system was developed. Scarily, mouse-driven gaming never seems to translate well to consoles. Yeah, ah, this is, yeah, this is uh, <laughs> just two words for you here, Peter and Molyneux. Well, three words, this never happened. <laughs> PlayStation version was in development. It was cancelled. A Dreamcast version was in development. It was cancelled. A PlayStation 2 version was in development. Luke, guess what? It came out? Nope, the other oh, one. Damn it. Uh, it, all, uh, it got ported to the Jaguar. Third one? It got ported to uh, the Saturn. More likely than what actually happened, it was cancelled. Oh, damn it. There was a version planned for the Xbox. <laughs> 3DO. No. Game Boy Color? Uh, funnily enough, there were versions proposed. They were going to go do either a Game Boy Color or a Game Boy Advance version. I actually would have been more surprised at a Game Boy Advance one. Game Boy Color just makes too much sense. Everything went to the Game Boy Color. I thought the Game Boy Advance made more sense because it's got four buttons. You stand more of a chance of converting some weird-ass mouse controls to it. But that's why I think the Game Boy Color makes more sense. There's less buttons, which means it's uh, it's more of a weird conversion. And that's what the Game Boy Color was there for. Weird conversions. Apparently, though, Electronic Arts were just like, oh, we have no interest in porting it to Game Boys. We're going to put all our eggs in the Dreamcast basket. Sorry, the PlayStation basket. Sorry, the PlayStation 2 basket. Sorry, the Xbox basket. Sorry, it's cancelled. I remember a lot about Black and White, though, because this got a lot of magazine coverage. And... The, I, I remember seeing it specifically a lot in Games Master uh, magazine as well. So when this came up, I, I didn't, I've never played the game or, it, or anything like that, but I have seen that cover and I've seen posters for it and I've seen a lot of magazine coverage for it. But one of the big issues they mentioned with this port of black and white that they'll never get to play is it's converting mouse controls from the PC to a console, which they are entirely right. It doesn't work unless you actually just use the mouse peripheral in which case it kind of does work because oh look it's a mouse oh look it's a mouse as ever where would we be without a handful of driving games there are two on the calendar at the moment there's the incredibly uninspiring speed devils and the really fast pod 2 if you don't fancy your real-time strategy games that are never going to come out or your japanese rpgs there's also racing games but racing games they're not that fast on like they talk about speed devils here um which i'm assuming is the speed devils online racing re-release uh, that they're referring to here uh, which they just call incredibly uninspiring and then just for pod 2 they just say and here's pod 2 and in both of those cases they're kind of pitching these as, oh, these are coming out at the same time that the PS2 is launching. And with Speed Devils Online, actually February of the next year, Pod 2 was a little bit closer. It came out a month later in December. But the whole conceit of this particular segment was 
these are games that, you know, are going to be the reason to keep your Dreamcast and not get a PS2. But the PS2 is, in theory, right there if your local shop has one in stock. And I, I think Speed Devils is unfairly kind of lambasted. The original did pretty well. It got like in the 80s to the 90s. And even Speed Devils Online, on average, got that good solid 75%. It's worth a sniff. And if you've got online play as well, well, that's a whole extra dimension. Pod 2 is Pod 2. Although, interestingly, a PS2 version was planned. It too got ported to the Jaguar. That's like saying the dog's gone to the farm now. It got ported to the Jaguar is our way of saying it's got cancelled. I'm just glad to see the Pod 2 made it into the show as well, because we did Pod back in our original timeline. And then we were like, oh, and it got a sequel much later on. And here we are, much later on, here's the sequel. Although interestingly, much like Fantasy Star Online, this too has had its online portions resurrected by dedicated fans, which I love. Keep going, homebrew community. You are doing wonders for digital preservation. So I, I feel like this segment isn't doing what it's set out to do, which is to get you excited about playing games online for your Dreamcast. Obviously, there's Fantasy Star Online, which is a huge thing, but it's also, you know, that's for nerds and shit. And then black and white, you're going to have a bit of trouble with, doesn't come out. And two, what they basically say are uninspired racing games. However, then we get into the killer app, which is Quake 3 Arena. Sadly, there isn't to be a tete-a-tete between PC and Dreamcast, as the two systems aren't compatible due to the lack of a certain hard drive. However, a patch for PC players is always a possibility, and there's no game where they're going to want it more than with Quake 3. I've got this for my Dreamcast. I know exactly where my copy of it is, even though it's not hugely useful at the moment. But Quake, like Doom, was one of those killer PC apps. Quake 2 was a killer PC app. Quake 3 Arena, where they basically went online players the way forward, it was huge. It was also around the time of the birth of the 3D Accelerator, where that became mainstream. So we were now at the point where PC games weren't just for nerds and goths and people that don't come back from the pub with a kebab. They were becoming for regular people. But what's better than having regular people playing on a PC, it's having it on a console sat under your TV where you can sit on the sofa with your joypad and your beer and your kebab. You may need extra hands or a tray. Or someone to just feed you the kebab while you're gunning people down. Oh, mate, that's like, that's the dream. The Dreamcast, if you will. <laughs> hey. Also, the Dreamcast version made use of the VMU. They put a mini maze type game on it, which I'm just like, A for effort. It's a hell of a like outro line to the this portion of the episode, which is... So there you have it, and you better get used to it, because come this time next year, all gaming will be like this, be it on console, on PC, or on your mobile telephone. The whole world is now an arcade. And do you know what? She's not wrong. It's just not quite 2001 that all gaming will become like this. All gaming is like this now and has been over the past sort of 10 years or so, but 2001, maybe not. Yeah, that's, that's reaching a little bit. I mean, I don't think I started to get truly solid online play. Oh, mid-2000s was probably, and that was with a PC, and that was with kind of a decent internet connection that was not your standard home broadband that was going to a more specialist isp that was kind of getting a bit of extra gear that was 
not relying on nascent Wi-Fi. That was running Ethernet cables around the house and stuff like that. Yeah, if it wasn't done down to like internet cafes and you know things like that, it was probably the 360 is probably when I really got into the online gaming and you know getting an Xbox Xbox Live pass and and things like that and playing Gears of War with my fellow uni mates. I definitely tried some online stuff with the original Xbox. I did have the modem hard drive mod for the PS2. I don't think I ever really did much with the Dreamcast at the time, and I've been a PC gamer off and on since i guess the late 90s but there was something about the 360 i think it is for the most part it just worked and i think i think i've mentioned it before not so much gears of war but street fighter 4 just a friday night you know i had my i had the friday night flat to myself got a couple of beers i probably did order a kebab or maybe a pizza and we just get the fight pad out we get the headset on and we drop into Street Fighter 4 lobbies and we troll people as Dan. That's how I rolled. And it was great. It was so much fun. I say Gears of War, but really, when I think back, the game I played online the most um, on my 360 was Uno. You're a hardcore gamer, mate. So many hours. Mostly as well because me and my friends would just log, like, log into the same lobbies and stuff. Play Uno for fucking hours. Ah, so it was less. It was less about playing online. It was more about playing with mates online. And I bet you're on the old voice chat. So we're on the voice chat, but it was like so. Me and my mate would be there, but obviously we're just one and two. And then there's three and four people who are also logging into the same uh, room as us. So we're playing against strangers, but I at least know Lee across the road. Now, nah, see that that's still fine. That is like when I've uh, gone on stream with Jailer with Jailer Dark and the objectively bad batch where, you know, it's had some really, really fun times playing Battlefront 2, where we're all terrible at the game, and there's 30-odd people in that game, but we know each other, and that's fun. But, Luke, if you want more juicy info about online gaming or maybe just the show, you can check out their website. And not only that, you get to vote in the top 50 games of all time. I'm sure that list... I I need to see if I can track down that list. Maybe it's on a future episode I haven't got to because I'm really curious what did the Bits audience vote for as the top 50 games of all time. I love period lists like that because it really shows what the tastes of the gamers at the time are. It must be in like the last episode of Series 4, so we might actually be able to find that one out. Stay tuned for that. Join us after the break for our PlayStation 2 Battle of the Beat-em-ups. get this phone number where are you calling me from are you watching me when you're bleeding a guy you don't squeeze him dry right away look at yourself tony when are you getting back into therapy don't start with that heads up sonny boy i know who you are and I saw Analyze This. The Sopranos continues Thursdays at 10.30 on 4. If you're single, or even if you're not, you'll always be welcome at the Singles Bar. People call in every day looking to chat, get a date, or perhaps something more. You'll find the Singles Bar on 09062 622 666. 
and we have thousands of callers every day looking for fun. So why don't you join them on 09062 Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's back. More cold feet. The official soundtrack. The brilliant new album capturing the essence of the outstanding new series. The boys want the girls while the girls... More Cold Feet, the, the official soundtrack. The Out now on CD and cassette. What a wonderful world. Meet Rocky, meet Ginger, meet Pie. I don't want to be a pie. Oh, Chicken Run, yours to own on video and DVD. Is that a question, Miss Fitzgerald, or a form of rudeness? A form of rudeness, Your Honor. Go on, uh, eagle. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Promise. You lied to me. It's not pleading. Alex told me. I've told the solicitor you're doing. Oh, well, I'm telling because I'm not. Why steal cars all of the time? Because I love them, he said. Winning is all that matters. North Square, Wednesday at 9 on 4. I am a firm believer in people being fitted with indicators. You know, you're trying to walk through a busy street and there's people just kind of meandering around, sort of like this, and they're just being really annoying. Or you try and go that way and they sort of meander over here and you're just like, oh my God, will you just move? So I think the next thing we should do is fit people with indicators so they can just go, you know, and then, then I don't have to get annoyed while I'm walking and get pedestrian rage, which is really annoying. Welcome back to part two. Coming up, we've got our PlayStation 2 Battle of the Beat-em-up. And 
well, it wouldn't be bits without a competition at the end of the show. So stay tuned for that. But first, it's time to take a swatch at some of the games available right now. Here's this week's Bits Shop Shelf. Yeah, we cut back from the ad break to the Bits chart, I guess, which is, I think, their five favorite games. It's certainly not the top five games out at the moment because one of the games they say is currently top of the video game charts um and we know it's not because we know it's tony hawks too but they say that one of the games is top of the video game charts but it's only the third game on their list so i think this is just here is it just that these are our five favorite games or is it just here are five games i think it's here are five games that are good and that are available right now that was kind of my assumption on it as well or it's like here are five games that we have played this week or here are five games that we saw in the top 10 at the virgin megastore we were at earlier we bought them out of budget we played them boom that's it they're newish releases but they are releases that are definitely on the shelves right now because all these games are. I mean, uh, the first game that we get here, Sydney 2000 Olympic Games on the PS1, that's definitely been out for a little while. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it is, hey, have you ever played a uh, an Olympic game? It's probably this one. Although the person who is playing this and has captured the footage is fucking rubbish at it because they come very much last in the dash. They come very much last in the swimming and then doing the high jump knock the bar over that is someone captured footage for 10 minutes and we're like that'll do one take luke it seems to be the running theme of these video game tv shows i've got to try and get more footage of football manager 2001 i haven't got time to play more of sydney 2000 or learn to get good at it where would we be without the football management simulator well thankfully they just keep churning them out in at number four is football manager 2001 fa premier league Get yourself the sheepskin coat and cultivate that sulky, pissed-off-on-the-sidelines expression. You're a football manager now, and it's time to take your club from the lower divisions of the FA right up to the Premier League. Football Manager 2001 will take a lot longer to get decent footage as well because there's so many bloody menus. Now, is this the sort of football manager that you were playing? This was not because I was a champ manager man. So, ah, fo- see, so football manager was something that my housemate university was into his football manager, but I was a champ manager kid. Um, so I never got into football manager. However, when they lift up that box, oh, did I get nostalgic for big box PC gaming? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do like a big box PC game. I do see some people online that collect big box PC games and I'm like, oh, and then I look at my shelf space and I'm like, Nah. <laughs> Daddy Ben, who who runs our uh, Clock Tower games that we do for our board game channel, he's got a fabulous collection of big bu- big box PC games that he used to have as part of his background. He's got a different background now when he's running Clock Tower games, but uh, uh, those original ones we did, um, yeah, he used to have a really, really good background. Fun fact, actually, about uh, Ben, he used to write for Games Master magazine. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess in the post-game era. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, certainly post-show. Yeah, because it was funny because I was we were having a game of Blood on the Clock Tower, and then during the night phase, you have a lot bit of downtime. So I was watching Games Master and making notes for a podcast that we were doing. Um, I can tell you exactly which episode it was as well. It was the one with Golden Bomberman, and I was then you know they came in 
woke me up to to give me my night's info and i was like sorry i've got to pause what i'm doing i'm watching games master and Ben was like oh he used to write games master magazine i was like there you really? go we had a really good little chat about it nice guy is ben small world um i'm not gonna lie sydney olympic games looks fine enough Football Manager 2001, I kind of zoned out for this. This is not my style of game. My simulation level for this is actually about WWE's 2K23 MyGM mode, which is big, bright graphics, minimal stats, little bit of shenanigans and kind of like, you know, penalty cards and all that kind of stuff, rather than just actually worrying about penalties and cards. But people seem to like them. I know you like this series. Uh, get yourself a sheepskin coat. You're a manager now. It's a database game. It's literally database their game. At number three, the game that everyone's been playing comes from a world of lemon barley water and glimpses at white panties. It's Virtua Tennis, of course, for the Dreamcast. Virtua Tennis is Sega's first attempt at the sport on the Dreamcast and is one of the hottest chart hits of the day going straight to number one. Its success stems from its arcade simplicity. Anyone can pick it up and quickly find themselves dashing across court like a pro. Unlike Virtua Tennis, again, we know who our audience are because we're talking about getting a glimpse of some cotton panties here because, and this is again, this is the one where they say, it's topping the charts. And I was like, well, it's not topping your charts. Or the actual charts. Could have been topping the Dreamcast chart. It, oh, yeah, or the Virgin Megastore charts that they were in. Yeah, both of those are possible. But they are right as well, because this is all about that arcade simplicity. This is pick up and play. And that's what I want from a tennis game, that idea that I can just get in there and know what lob is, this, that, and the other, and I can just very easily pick this up and smash through it. Like my favorite tennis game, and I think I've mentioned this in the podcast before, is Anna Kornikova Smash Court Tennis. I absolutely loved that game. But the Dreamcast version of this game got, like, it, it got big praise here and it got near universal acclaim across the board. Not only because it was a fun, easy to pick up game, but four players, four players simultaneous. Love us some four player simultaneous action. But it didn't just stop at the Dreamcast. Windows got a version a couple of years later. But it didn't just stop at Windows. 2002. Guess what, Luke? What's that? Game Boy Advance. Didn't just stop at the Game Boy Advance. 2003. Guess what? What's that? Nokia Engage. Again, these are ones I'm least right. Because it's a Sega-based thing. So once Sega stopped making consoles, like, ah, we'll just port this to any old fucking thing we can get our hands on. What's that? A guy called Brian wants to license out this game. Yeah, sure. We'll do that. Fine, whatever. Do you want a Sonic game? Of course. Yeah, do you want to put that on your shit little console? Go have at it. Go wild. I do love the one quote here from Blake Fisher of Next Gen who was one of the people that praised the four-player mode, but also said, don't avoid this because it's not football. <laughs> lads, 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 lads. At number two is Perfect Dark, but not on the muscle-bound N64, on the teensy-weensy Little Brother Game Boy Color. Now, how did they manage that? Nintendo know how to please their audience, but they're just plain spoiling them by packing the epic Perfect Dark into the Game Boy. The storyline and characters are the same as the original, but obviously something had to give. And guess what? It's the looks. That said, they've tried every trick in the book to keep it far from the bland, pallid world of Pokemon. Oh, did I say Pokemon? Shit. We made a joke about this earlier, about you pour any old thing to the Game Boy Color and it will feel odd, but also very much at home. Because Perfect Dark is here. 
on the Game Boy Color. It's all there, the story and characters, not quite, it is a different story. But it's, you know, hey, do you like Perfect Dark? Here is a Perfect Dark game that's a different way of playing Perfect Dark. Yep, it was ported around the same time as the Game Boy Color version of Donkey Kong Country. It didn't just run on the Game Boy Color, it supported the Game Boy printer, the Game Link cable, the transfer pack for the N64. It was a fully featured prequel game and even included built-in force feedback. There was a rumble function built into the ge- built into the game cartridge, which is it, it's pretty cool. It it's highlighted here. It kind of got mixed reviews, but when it was praised in reviews, it was praised by people going, it's not the best game, but fuck me, they got this to work on the Game Boy Color. That deserves some plaudits. It's like when they got Resident Evil games on the Game Boy Color, and you're like, yeah, are they as good as the Resident Evil games on the PlayStation? Probably not, but hey, it's pretty impressive that we've got a Game Boy Color version of Resident Evil. And hey, neither of them, Luke, are as bland as Pokemon. And in at number one on the bits, it's already out, so you can buy it, shirts, is a PC game. It's called The Sims. Living it up. The Sims Living It Up is actually an expansion pack for the smash hit original of last year. That game put you in charge of your own family in a bizarre cross between a soap opera and a goldfish bowl. And this was way before Big Brother. But those games, they were just the foreplay to the main event of their recommendations. A game which isn't actually a game, it's an expansion pack. Yeah, an expansion pack of The Sims Living It Up, or Living Large, if you're an American listener. Uh, here's a fun little uh, tidbit from this game. Uh, I've, I've taken this directly from the Wikipedia. The game features new NPCs, such as Servo, the Tragic Clown, and the Grim Reaper. Santa Claus will come if the Sim leaves some cookies beside a Christmas tree and a fireplace. Santa will leave presents under the tree. The Tragic Clown visits depressed Sims who owned the Tragic Clown painting in order to cheer them up and failing miserably. Sims can contact an illness from a bite by the guinea pig included in this expansion pack. The Grim Reaper performs the final rites for deceased Sims. Living Sims can plead with the Reaper to save that particular Sim, which will result in three possible outcomes. Death, resurrection, or zombie. But hey, Sims was big. Living Large was big. A lot of these expansion packs did really well because it did just add a considerable amount of functionality and new content to the game. I don't mind aftermarket content when you actually give something. I don't like this whole thing we get nowadays of, oh, you pay money to unlock stuff that's already on the disc. If you're going to give us new content, make it substantial. I was a a big Sims player. Um, I loved that first game. Uh, I hate... If you ever get to play the old Sims again, here's a fun little thing to do. Build yourself a floating house. So just build a load of pillars, then build your floor from that. Staircase going up to that. Delete the pillars. And by the way, got a floating house. I actually read that in Games Master Magazine as a tip for when you're playing the game. Um, and I have tried on several occasions, or I did try on several occasions, to just try and have one kid in the house. So no parents, just the kids. And see you if home you can, alone it. Uh, home alone it and try and raise that kid to an adult. And I think it's impossible because the kid gets too tired. The kid doesn't make, can't make food that's good enough. And sometimes you miss school and then the secret ser- and then the services come and pick you up 
and then the game is over. Interesting psychological experiment. Though I never got the, I actually, I got no expansion packs for The Sims. Um, me and my friends used to just download shit from the internet that was just patches, basically. Yeah. I think I did more playing of Sims with patches myself rather than, you know, official expansion packs. But hey, they were there. But they even say with this, well, yes, it's not actually a game by itself. It's an expansion pack. The Sims is great. That's it. And we then get a recap of the past five minutes. Yeah, they just recap the top five again. I think it's because they're going, ah, we're back two thirds of the way through the episode. We've had an ad break. I imagine they're getting a bit sleepy. They finished their kebab. So we just need to kind of go, you fell asleep, didn't you? You kind of nodded off during the bits about like the premier manager. Don't worry. Here's what you missed. Bright trollops, let's get out of here. We're out of booze and it's time for the battle of the beat-em-ups. And they go to a pub that I don't think is an actual pub. And if it is, it looks like a proper shit pub. This is definitely a real pub. This is a pub that looks like a pub that I actually went to about a month or so ago. I double-checked and I don't think it is. But that vertical wood panelling, it's a very specific era of pubs it's kind of not a traditional victorian turn of the century type pub like a lot of the older pubs that you get say around london this is one of those pubs that probably was built in the 50s or 60s you know it is a bit of a concrete block pub and yeah you you get that vertical wood stain i would imagine if that pub is still around today there is probably a 50 50 chance that that wood paneling is still there it looks like an absolute shithole but the locals love it it may be a shithole but it's their shithole luke show some respect but it does have very nice ashtrays those are some very very fancy looking ashtrays for such a shithole of a pub those are some fancy ass ashtrays they they definitely are and also hey guess what it's 2000 there's still ashtrays in the pub so they're having having some pint the big ladettes that they are as they compare Three beat-em-ups against each other. They kind of recap each one of them, those being Street Fighter EX3, Dead or Alive 2, and Tekken Tag Tournament. Then break them down into individual components, that being speed, moves, and looks. And give each of those individual scores and then total those up with peanuts that they have bought from the bar to determine what is the best fighting game to buy for your PS2 when you buy it at launch, or if you can get your hands on one at launch. But we start by going through these three games, and it's interesting because at least two of these games hold some relevance to stuff we talked about before, and the other is Dead or Alive 2. Even though EX3 is the umpteenth instalment of the series, with its famously fast action, tight controls, and now fully-fledged 3D, they've added a few new elements to the game. Like the new Tekken Tag, EX3 also has the strategic tag system where characters team up into pairs. But this one has the ability of full-on two-against-two combat. The fact that Street Fighter has always been more gimmicky, cartoony and slightly freak showish is the reason Tekken fans will always look down upon it. But your street head will be happy to engage in the low-pain, high-gain EX3 experience. First we start with Street Fighter EX3 which they describe as the umpteenth instalment in the series. I think the EX series should be counted as separate, but hey, I'm a nerdy goth. Hey, but now, Ash, finally, the game's in 3D. Yeah, finally, ignoring EX and EX2. 
the yeah. games in 3D. Yeah, yeah. When they get to that later on, they're like, finally, this series has upgraded itself into 3D. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure we did a Games Master Challenge not 18 months ago that was on a 3D Street Fighter. But this took me back to that period in Games Master where 3D games were the thing and anything 2D was being kind of sneered at a bit because here we are and they're like, oh, like Tekken, it's got the tag system. But Street Fighter, it's cartoony, it's gimmicky, it's a bit of a freak show. It's why Tekken fans look down on it. And my brain went, also, it's why Street Fighter fans look down on Tekken because they like it cartoonish and freaky. Yeah, that, that's, that's why I'm more Street I'm one of the street heads that they refer to as opposed to the, the Tekken players that look down upon it. Mate, we see Skullamania here. That's great. Yeah. More reason than any to, to get yourself into EX games, but yeah, I mean, like, kind of, you know, you read reviews from this at the time. People liked this way more than Bits does. People actually quite like EX three. It was also the first, I believe, EX game to go straight to console. In fact, it was the first Street Fighter game overall to not get some form of arcade release. If you exclude the fact that Street Fighter the movie the arcade game versus the home release was almost two different games in the way it was developed. But this, I, I still would love to see a Street Fighter EX collection. Get us EX, EX2 and EX3. Come on, Capcom, you love putting out games. Talk with Arika. It'll be fine. You can work it out. But Luke, what if you want boobs? What if you want cleavage and puppies that won't stay in the pound? <laughs> was released in the arcades in late 1998 and was ported in perfect form last year to the Dreamcast. Now it's defected to the Sony camp. The first thing that bounces into view is the simplicity of the controls. Unlike other lesser offerings of this genre, you can use the boundaries of the arena to great effect. But don't stop at the window or the precarious edge of a cliff. Oh no. Chuck or be Chuck to another level and continue to brawl be beautiful yeah what if you want just big bouncing boobs in your face well thankfully dead or alive 2 is here yes the sexiest beat-em-up to make it through the sensors i think this may be the last point where dead or alive 2 could actually be considered a beat-em-up and after this it did just become tit physics the game and even then i think that's possibly a stretch because like dead or alive 2 has got a lot of jiggle physics in there and the ability to change the how the jiggle physics work in the options menu true and then we get the later released versions the updated ones of dead or alive 2 millennium and dead or alive 2 hardcore but the game does look good and it does have those multi-layered interactive venues which is something i'm always a fan of in a fighting game i do like it when you can kick someone against a wall or there's a breakable floor and you can go between levels i think that's a really fun thing to be able to do i think it's it's really cool and it's something this game is offering that's not in either of the other two so despite the fact that yes a lot of people are buying this game because tits there are some unique gameplay features also, of the three, it is the most accessible. With the caveat that if you've played any of the other Street Fighter games, you will be able to pick up EX3. Dead or Alive and Dead or Alive 2 are quite easily playable if you're a button masher. Oh, yeah. Or Absolutely. mashing something. Yeah. Like these are games designed to titillate. Like, the, you know, they're very much the, the purpose of them. But again, like. More of that was the style of the time. I was recently just reviewing a wrestling pay-per-view that came out in the year 2000, happened in April of 2000. 
and it has an establishing shot in that wrestling pay-per-view that is just a wrestler's well a manager's boobs and her cleavage and it's just like the camera is just fully focused on them and then like pulls back to reveal her and the the tag team that she is managing and that is just was the style of the time and dead or alive 2 kind of reflected that era of gaming it's very much looked upon down now quite rightly so but hey dude it was it was of its time and there were people that friggin loved it because it was the style at the time and for my money hey it's not the worst video game movie adaptation it's certainly it's not the worst fighting game adaptation although i would say that i actually have a little bit of a soft spot for the tekken movie it kind of just dropped there with no real warning but it's okay like there were worse fighting game movies out there and i'm not even going to just dig on street fighter i'm just gonna say that you know double dragon is pretty fucking awful i would like to do a video on uh that tekken movie because that could have been a massive movie could have been huge before it just became the straight to dvd movie that it is the first time i saw that movie i was like oh that's weird someone's made a movie called tekken like the video game and then i looked at it and i'm like oh it is the video game i mean that actually is technically what happens with the sequel to that tekken movie which is it's just a different movie that they put the tekken name on at the end of in its latest incarnation tekken offers you the full range of players from the previous three titles complete with new moves and superlative speed here we have the added bonus of the strategical tag there's a lot to uncover in this edition of tekken tasty indeed so yeah that is all three of them have the tag functionality to it the camera movements were the style of the time the outfits that the girls are wearing were the style of the time and clearly tag beat-em-ups are the style at the time although whilst this is called tekken tag and the tag mechanic does play a large part in the game it could also have been called tekken trilogy because this does go the mortal kombat trilogy route this is very much a let's bring as many fighters as possible back from the first three games and whack them all in there because almost everyone is in there uh there's about maybe four or five people that are absent one of which is a licensing issue uh because of uh gone the little dinosaur is a manga character and they were like well he can't be in it because we're not paying those licensing fees again and a couple of others that are missing is like the original jack's not in there I think the first King's not in there. The first Kuma's not in there. It's mainly people that were superseded in the game series don't appear. But hell of a roster. I think I mentioned this on our Tekken 3 episode that we had in Series 7. But Tekken Tag is actually the Tekken game I've played the most of. And that is because when I got my PS2, a friend of mine lent me Tekken Tag tournaments. So I, I, this is the teching I have played the most. And interestingly, one of the reviews I found of this game was from former Games Master contributor Frank O'Connor, who reviewed it for Next Generation, who awarded it four out of five stars, stating, The only thing preventing Tekken Tag from receiving a perfect score is its lack of innovation. It's basically a prettier Tekken 3. However, that still makes it the best Tekken yet. So not really mentioning the tag functionality, because it, I guess at the end of the day, it's not despite it being in the name it's not a core gameplay thing nor is it unique the game is just tekken 3 plus yeah so the the tag element comes into it from a tactical perspective i guess of tagging in at the right time to continue combos and and this that and the other but i don't 
know how much that plays into it because as I said, like I, I although I played it, it is the most I've ever played of a Tekken game. I can't tell you a whole heck of a lot about it other than it's the Tekken game I played the most. So we've taken a look at all three, and in conclusion, what do we have? As you mentioned earlier, we're going to judge them on speed, movements, and looks. And Alex pulls some nuts out of Booth's top. Yeah, so I think that some of this is slightly unfair because the first thing they oh, look at is... Oh, a lot of this is unfair. Because the first thing they look at is speed. And it's Street Fighter EX3 and they're like, oh, it may look fast, but when you boils down to it's all just a couple of button presses, one out of five. And I was like, hold the fucking phone, Dead or Alive 2's coming up in a second. That's a button mashing game. But Tekken, who clearly going into this, was the chosen one provides the exact response you'd get, boom, four out of five. DOA2, participation trophy, three out of five. It's no Tekken. And then we get on to moves. Street Fighter is described as, quote unquote, as limited as it always was, two out of five. Oh, yeah, that is clearly not a fan of Street Fighter. Like the, these are people who have played these games are like, I've never liked a Street Fighter game and this is just another Street Fighter game, but it is in 3D. So of it's an course old game, gonna, Luke. So of course you're going to think, this is the same old shite I've been served up previously, which is hilarious, really, when you consider the review that Frank O'Connor gave for Tekken Tag Tournament, which is, this is the same old shite that you had previously, but it's a bit shinier now. Tekken Tag up next, that gets four. I see where this is going. But DOA 2 also gets four points, and then it brings us down to looks which is where they describe EX3 as having finally taken the leap to 3D. Finally, Luke. Finally, in the third game of this series that has been 3D all along. But the backgrounds aren't so nice. So three out of five. And, and Tekken has never looked better, but only scores four, which is weird. I see the logic of this because even if they went into this with a Tekken bias, you can't deny that DOA2 with its multi-level interactive backgrounds and the character models, regardless of how much you fiddle with the bounce physics, it is a really nice looking game. And having those stages be not just backdrops, but interactive adds a whole new dimension, not only gameplay wise, but also to the look because you can, that's the thing with Tekken 3, it's kind of a perpetual scroll. You go back, you go back, you go back. You know, the, the arena just moves around you. With Dead or Alive 2, you will hit a boundary wall. It is possible to box yourself into a corner. That's a big thing. I, I hear what you're saying. Counterpoint, they wanted them to score the same to direct you to the website. So Tekken, Tekken gets four here so that Dead or Alive 2 can get five. Ergo, they both get 12. That is a horrifically dishonest thing to suggest, Luke. I, I am mortified. Also, they just did a real fucking hatchet job on EX3. Oh, hugely unfair. I'm not even the biggest EX, EX series fan, but I think it is massively unfair. Like this is it, Unless it's it Skullamania. It feels Games Master in a way, to be honest. You know, the way they used to talk about how things like uh, Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat have had their day. Mortal Kombat in particular in Series 7, they were like, surely Mortal Kombat's had its day by now. But really what we're looking at, Tekken, that's the actual fighting game. Virtual Fighter, that's the actual fighter's fighting game. It's the same thing here with bits. So on the score system, what have we got for these fantastic PlayStation 2 beat-em-ups? Street Fighter EXE scored 6. And Dead or Alive 2 scores 12. Tekken Tag Tournament, also 12. It's a tiebreaker. So it's up to the people to decide. If you want to vote for Tekken Tag Tournament or Dead or Alive 2 to get the whole 
proposition, then drop us a line at our website and the address is coming up at the end of the show. And this is where my note said the Games Master tradition of one take lives on because, yeah, they're pointing to the wrong boxes at the wrong time and the person behind the camera must have realised it. I think they may have realised it. Fuck it, it's in the can. Let's go home. Yeah, we need to get out of here. We've got some other things that we need to film. I've got a stick behind me that I need to take out into the streets in a second. But not before Alex ninja stars beer mats at the camera, which did make me laugh. So yeah, the idea behind this is Street Fighter scores 6, DOA scores 12, and Tekken scores 12. The only way to decide an actual winner is for you, the viewers, to head to the website and vote for which you think is the actual winner of this, which is great because that means we're asking people to vote on a game they likely haven't played. Mate, this is even though it's the early days of the internet, people are still just as likely to comment on things that they don't actually have any right commenting on. I, I feel that in the second half of this show, it, it, they are sort of telling a story a little bit here, which is that the longer the show goes on, the more drunk the hosts become. So in the city, you know, particularly when they get to the pub, you know, they're two pints in by the time this segment has finished. And then they go out and do the wackiness that we're about to get. And then later on, it's all about like, no, we were too pissed to actually come up with anything good. Because this next bit here, which was filmed on a miserable day, as they come to test hand-to-eye coordination. And the how they're going to do this is by asking punters to hit back balls with the dueling stick from gladiators. I'm going to explain the rules to you. You've got just 15 seconds. We're going to get you on the clock uh, to hit back as many balls. We're going to throw them towards you in various positions. And you just try and hit them back. Okay, and if you get all 15, it means you are very, very good at video games. Oh, here we go. Quick! Oh. Hand to eye coordination. One! Two! Ow! And there's one, and there's two. Oh, careful there, cowboy. No. I'm not going to. Whoa, whoa, whoa! And he's, he's, oh, he knows. He, but he's, oh, wait, we got a backhand in there. Hey, hey, he's stop him, stop him. He's, he's really oh quick. Which I think was just two pillows gaffer taped to a piece of PVC piping, and the balls were just a bunch of tennis balls in a bucket. Yeah, and some members of the public hit them, some don't. Some of them hit them back really hard, and they hit the camera. Sometimes they actually hit the hosts, and it's all there. This whole segment is just so Emily Booth can do the final gag of... So, Britain, thriving with hand-to-eye to ball coordination. Which is the title of your sex tape. Yeah, that's all of this was there for, was to do a joke about wanking. Games Master, it may be off the air, but its spirit lives on. Its spectral emissions lurk in the atmosphere to this very day. That's us nearly done. Well, next week we've got the Game Boy Advance, Zelda Majora's Mask and Prince Nassim Boxing. So stick it in your diary. Yeah, I guess we didn't do next week's episode. I would like to have talked about Majora's Mask and the GBA, in fact, because I've, thanks to you, I've now got a brand new GBA. Which is the techno cover of the Wurzel's Combine Harvester. Oh, you've got a brand new GBA. But, you know, before we get out of here, I feel like we need to have a, a competition of sorts. And, you know, what, what better prize could there be for this TV show about video games than a year's membership to the gym? I love how they do this kind of like, oh, here's the prize and the sponsorship, pulling down the shirt to show the logo. 
And the other two hosts do have this look on this face of, the fuck? They, they look as perplexed about it as I was, as you were. And yeah. to be fair, as most of the beer drinking, kebab holding audience may have been. But then it gets a level weirder because they say, All you have to do is answer a straightforwardish question. Now, we can't be asked to come up with a new one every week. So we got a bit pissed last night and did all our question thinking in one big go. And we shoved everything in there. So, if it all seems slightly random, then sorry. And the question is, in ancient Greece, there are 17 words for love. How many are there for smegma? Is this a question they came up with after watching Eurotrash? Because it feels like the sort of question like you'd have to answer on Eurotrash to win a shitting man or Lolo Ferrari's bra or something like that. Yeah, it's, um, it's a bit out of left field as a question with everything else that's been on the show. And you can tell as well, like they as the host think that this is a bit weird as a question and funny in a way, but mostly just weird. It made me laugh. And also, I believe the technically correct answer is one, because the word smegma is actually derived from ancient Greek. There you go. Language lesson, kids. Yeah, it, it, it's quite the way to, to end off this episode, which like, I, I, I think I liked the first half of it more than I did the second. I wonder, like, is, is there part of that deliberately by design because they're like, we've got their attention for the first half. By the time we get to the second half, they're kind of passed out already. I am 90% certain I watched bits when it first broadcast. However... I wasn't quite the staggering home with the kebab type of person, but I possibly would have been a little bit pissed. So I don't remember a lot of it. And I don't, and, and therefore, I don't know what I'd have thought of it at the time. But right now, in 2023, I just feel very old. I did watch bits. Um, you know, and we're, and we're talking about this more next week because I, I definitely watched Thumb Bandits as well. So I'm 14 going on 15 when this episode airs. So I'm also not staggering home from a pub with a kebab in hand. I'm actually just staying up late to, to watch whatever's on Channel 4. And I probably like really loved it at the time because A, I had a huge crush on uh, Alex and Emily Booth. And I just liked anything that was talking about video games. I, I liked magazines that talked about video games. So I liked TV shows that talked about video games. So it probably was right up my street. A lot of it is just towards the style of the time in terms of how the show is put together. But I find it quite cringy looking back on it. It's aged worse than Games Master has aged. In certain terms of how it looks and how it's presented. Because Games Master just feels like a TV show from the 90s. This feels like a capsule, a time capsule of a very small period of time, which is how these TV, sort of TV shows were made. And I think it's aged quite poorly. And yeah, I, I think it's central gimmick of, at least this is the, my, the thesis I'm presenting is, the idea is they are getting more and more drunk the show gets on. But it also means that the more the show goes on, just because they just become more obnoxious. And they are quite obnoxious during the beat em up segment. They're quite obnoxious during the, uh, the, the the competition segment and then during the look how funny we are playing 10-pin bowling down at the park. 
and it made me not want to hang out with them. Whereas I could, the one thing I can always say with Games Master, even when it was Games Master at its worst, like Final Furlong, I still wanted to hang out with them because I still sort of thought they were like really fun. These were sort of drunk people. I was like, ah, I don't want to be a part of your club. And also just to head anyone off at the pass, I would, f- I, I feel the same as you. And I would feel exactly the same way if it was three blokes presenting this show as well. Oh, yeah. It's nothing to... Because I know there are some people back then, I've seen what the internet was like in 2000, who were just like, women talking about video games. Oh, dear. No, 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 no. This drunken lad culture, whether it's lad or ladette, it's it's not me. You know, it, it it wasn't properly me then. It sure as shit ain't me now. Yeah, the sort of nerdy shit they're getting away from is actually the kind of nerdy shit that I like and that I always enjoyed in Games Master when we got those kind of weirder, more technical news pieces or when we went off and found out about Waterworld the Ride or artificial beaches. You know, that, that was the cool stuff. But to talk about the positive, I did enjoy the chemistry the three of them had together. I enjoyed some of the stylistic choices. I liked the kind of idea that they were all flatmates. I loved some of the decor. I loved the little freestanding bar. There's one of those in the latest series of Taskmaster. And every time I see it, all I think is, I wish I had a space for a freestanding bar like that. That looks great. It is. I, I There's a lot that I like about the show. The, the, the chemistry in particular. Emily Booth is obviously the, the odd person out here because she is the one who has zero interest in video games. Like, once this show is finished, she just goes off, goes back to the things that she actually does like, which is that cult movie world. But Alex and Emily Dunn are still very good friends to this day. When I was talking about that Retro Hour podcast interview, she talked about how they are still very close friends. And when Emily Dunn was going to, out to stay at Alex's recently, so recently it was about 2017 that they did this interview. So back in 2017, the producer of this show sent Alex a DVD that had every episode of Bits on it. And they were like, do we dare rewatch this show, you know, 18 years later? And they popped it on watched one episode or first half of the first episode and were like, nope, I cannot watch any more of this because it's too embarrassing. It's too cringy. So they've got that very good relationship. They've got that very good friendship. And I think that that does translate onto the screen. And I enjoyed the first half of it when it was just this sort of new show that was like, here is some footage. Is some of it right? Yeah, but it's fine. I actually really liked that. It was just more of the, the, the drunken obnoxiousness that I kind of put me at arm's length with it. And it's only now that I'm watching it with 2023 eyes, that I'm suddenly realizing that although I was watching this show, I was not the target audience for this. Not just because I was not a drunken lad with a kebab in my hand, but also because I was the nerdy goth that's being pushed out of the arcades. This show's actually not made for me, but I was the person that was tuning in to watch it every week. And I think same i mean i'm more aging hippie now but back in the late 90s to early 2000s there was certainly an edge of goth to me i wore a long leather coat i had a natty line in waistcoats i actually think me then probably had more sense more of a sense of fashion than me now does i don't know if late night games master would have been the same maybe it would have but i never felt like games master was um I never felt like Games Master was setting one subset of gamers against another. It wasn't going, oh, well, this is only for cool gamers. It was just like, no, this is a show for gamers. And I think Bits maybe does have a little bit of that of a, no, this is for the lad gamers. It's not for those goths that hang around the arcade. It's not for those nerds that like all their train spotting bullshit. And I guess that was the brief. 
That was the market that Channel 4 with 4 later wanted to appeal to. And if it worked for them, cool. If it found the target audience, cool. I mean, they did five series, so clearly something was right. But for all the things about it I can appreciate, it's it's not for me. It's, it's funny as well, because when we were just talking about it, you said, like, you know, Games Master had its audience. And I was like, yeah, and the Games Master felt like it was made for me, but it wasn't just made for me. It was also made for the same people that Bits is made for. You mentioned there, it's like, it's sort of made for, if you like video games, this show is made for you. And there would have been segments of Games Master that the, the laddie culture probably wouldn't have had much interest in. But that's fine because there was some other stuff that they were interested in. It was a broad spectrum of appeal. But this game, this show is very much going out of its way to say, if you actually like games, this is not a show for you. I would say the one area this show does succeed in, and it's an area that Games Master often failed in, is whilst it does go, yeah, shove those goths out of the way, it doesn't play one gender as being superior to another. Literally, the most we get are the hosts going, yeah, but what if you want tits? Because you are probably, statistically speaking, a lad watching this, and therefore you're probably interested in tits. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, it, it certainly knows who its audience is, and I think it caters to that audience very well. Uh, I, I think it is a show that has not aged well, but I don't think it is a bad show. It's just not a show that is made for me. And I would say also there are episodes of Games Master that have aged far, far worse than this has. And there were probably episodes of other shows we're going to look at during the wilderness years that are probably aged far worse. But I am glad we have watched this and I'm glad we've taken a look at it. And despite the fact it's not for me, it has kind of made me want to watch more to see how they do tackle other things like the Game Boy Advance, like Majora's Mask, like more of the PlayStation 2. Take a look at the later series. Take a look at Series 5 and see what's going on there. So, you know, not 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 a complete, you know, strikeout for me. So on rating, how many peanuts would you give it, Luke? Well, I don't know. Which which am I pointing to a picture of this or thumb bandits? <laughs> <laughs> if we treat it as a scale out of twelve, because twelve was the maximum one of those games scored, how many peanuts out of twelve would you give it? I'm giving this six peanuts. I'm giving this the Street Fighter EX score. They were very unfair to Street Fighter EX, and I've probably been very unfair to bits. I'm giving it six peanuts out of 12. I mean, Luke, I think that is quite childish. That's quite immature. And I'm giving them six peanuts out of 12 as well. But I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule if you want to check us on social media. We are on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console. And you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to chat with us in real time, chat with other listeners, other fans of Games Master, retro pop culture current pop culture gaming in general you can do so over on our discord and if you want to support this podcast monetarily you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod where at the five pound level you'll get next week's episode which is our look at thumb bandits one week early and ad free and at the 10 pound level get a little bit extra ash what is that at the 10 pound level they get our patreon supporter pack the contents of which because we are recording these episodes slightly in advance is currently still tbc but Whatever that content is, it'll be wrapped up in the remains of a kebab, surrounded by stellar cans, wrapped in brown tape, and then hurled 
onto the nearest night bus. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Adam D, Adam Warrington, Alexis, Andrew Cummings, Andrew Greenwood, Andy, Arcadia Wild Bill, Chris Price, Chrissy26, Colin Conroy, David Palmer, David White, Gordon Aiken, Gordon Brands, Gordon Dempster, Harriet Mankigirl, I am Cheadle, Ian Roberts, Ian Williams, Jamie, Joe McGonagall, Joe Mitchell, Kevin Kerr, Kylie, Lawrence, Liam, Link, Mark, Matty Boom, Misha, Nick, Phil Stopford, Retro Fun for Everyone, Reese, Richard, Sean, Selena, Simon, Super Sexy Dave Fisher, The Amazing Clip, Tom, Dylan McEvoy, Tom S, William, Xanderthal, and Zach. We will see you in seven days' time for our look at Alex's return to the video game world alongside Ian Lee in Thumb Bandits. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.